So, Mark chapter one today. As I mentioned before, we're going to start a uh, we're going to start preaching through the book of Mark. And if anyone's ever read through the book of Mark, it is an exciting book. It's it's uh, it's the shortest gospel. Um, I I you know in the old days it's hard to find old commentaries on the gospel of Mark because. For a long time, they thought that Matthew and Luke came before Mark. Well, as they're studying and, and recognizing certain things, they've come to find out that Mark was actually the first gospel that was written. So before any other gospel was written, it was the gospel of Mark. And so I thought it'd be a good gospel to start with. Um, and so let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll open up the first verse and, and do a little introduction to Mark. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now, and we need your blessing. We need your grace. We need your, your help, Lord. We need your illumination. Father, we pray for your Holy Spirit. We pray that, that you would give us grace to open this up, Father, in a way that pleases you, in a way that exalts Christ. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We pray that you would impress that upon us today, even in an introductory sermon, Lord, that you would give us grace to behold the beauty of the Savior, to cling to him with all our might, the might that you give us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, so. Let me do a little introduction. Now, anytime, anytime in, in my experience that um, a, a preacher or a pastor starts a, a, a new book, the first sermon can usually be a little dry and dusty and, and a little historical. And there's a reason for that. It's because you, you want to build the context around who wrote it, what was the purpose of writing it, what's going on, what's the backdrop behind all of that. So that's some necessary information that we're going to go through today. But I also do want to look at the first verse because it's packed with a lot of good stuff also. So the first verse just says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so um, the backdrop of this to me is one of the most really unusual and, and encouraging things about the, the gospel of Mark. And so this was written, usually people say around the, sometime between the year 60 and 70. So in the, in, in the year 80, 70 is when the Romans came in and destroyed um, the temple in Jerusalem. That was a horrific event. That's when the temple was wiped out. The, the, the genealogies of the Jews was wiped out. They had nowhere to do their sacrifices anymore. It was a historical monumental event that still affects Jewish people today. That was 80, 70. This book was written before AD 70, but there was also another event that was very important around the same time in Rome, and it happened in 64 AD, so six years before 70 AD. In 64 AD in Rome was the year that Nero started the fires. If you all remember Nero, he was one of the psychotic um, Roman emperors, and it's uh, uh, Supposedly, he started out sane, but over time, he became increasingly more despotic and irrational and things like that. So by the year 64 AD, he's setting Rome on fire, even though he's the emperor, and, and probably so that he could watch it burn. He was, he was really big into theater and drama and things like that. Well, if you know the story of Troy, um, the Trojan horse goes into Troy, and they jump out, and they burn the city down. So Nero had an idea. He wanted to see what that might have looked like. So he had parts of Rome burned. Well, the problem is, is people started realizing, I think Nero's behind this. Now, Nero is the emperor, kind of like our politicians today, right? They're trying to blame other people. They're saying, it wasn't me. It's, it's not my fault. It was somebody else's fault. Well, he pins the blame on Christians. 
because they were at that time kind of the scum of the earth. They were, they were growing in popularity, but they certainly weren't that popular. Um, they were considered uh, uh, atheists. They were considered cannibals because of the Lord's Supper. Um, they were considered incestuous because they called the Lord's Supper a love feast, which just meant they came together in love to, to eat together. And so for all these, a lot of different rumors going on, it was easy for Nero to say it was the Christians that did it. Later on, secular historians um, like Tacitus, for instance, he says this. I wanted to read this. This is from Tacitus. It was a, a guy who wrote in the in, um, uh, first century. It says, uh, writing a generation removed from these events, so he's probably 40, 50 years after the, the burning. This is Tacitus. He says, neither human resources, no, nor imperial money, nor appeasement of the gods eliminated sinister suspicions that the fire had been instigated by Nero. To suppress this rumor, Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement and notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Now, this guy's not a Christian. He's saying these, these Christians that were, they were depraved, but um, he pinned the blame on them. He said, first, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. Then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned, right? So they arrest the first batch of Christians. The Christians are starting to say, okay, well, these other guys are Christians too. These are my friends, etc." They go after them. They get them. Um, not so much for fire. Okay, oh, then on their information, large numbers of others were condemned. Not so much for the fire as for their antisocial tendencies. Why? Because they were separate from the world, right? They were trying to live a life that honored God, and they knew that, hey, you know, to honor God, we can't go to the pagan temples. We can't do what everyone else in Rome's doing. We're, we're doing our own thing. And so because of that, they're like, these Christians are antisocial. They're mean-spirited. You know, they're not. So, so it, it went over with the public. You know, the public's thinking, well, okay, yeah, we don't like them anyway. So, if, you know, if somebody did it, yeah, I guess that's fine. Um, their deaths were made far uh, farcical that means that was just just unusual kind of joking around it's look, look and i'll give you an example dressed in wild animal skins they were torn to pieces by dogs or crucified what they would do is they would sew christians up in animal skins and put them into the, the arenas the gladiator arenas and then they would stick the animals on them because you're a christian inside this 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 thing you know and you're moving around and the animals pounce on you um torn to pieces by dogs crucified or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight. Nero provided his gardens for this spectacle and exhibited displays in the circus at which he mingled in the crowd or stood in a chariot dressed as a charioteer. Despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied for it was felt that they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than to the national interest. So they realized, they realized that Nero's up to no good. Now, did they do anything about it? No, because again, they were the scum of the earth, right? But they were still saying, yeah, I don't, this is going a little far, Nero. You know, this is, but at the same time, I mean, they're in the arenas. You can imagine they're cheering on this, the spectacle and everything else. This is the context that Mark is written in. Okay. Mark was written to people specifically living in Rome for the sake of encouraging them to stand their ground, to, to hold the line, to keep going, because Christ is worth it. And Christ has promised that this was going to happen. And so when you're reading through the Gospel of Mark, have that in your mind as far as what's going on in the background. Uh, on this understanding, Mark's task was the projection of Christian faith in a context of suffering and martyrdom. If Christians were to be strengthened and the gospel effectively proclaimed, it would be necessary to exhibit the similarity of situation faced by Jesus and the Christians of Rome. That's why, for instance, turn to uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 12. Mark chapter 1, verse 12. It says, uh, very, very 
obscure reference here, but it's the only gospel that has this language in it. Immediately, the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Into the wilderness. Okay, now look what happens. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. It's the only gospel that makes that reference to wild beasts. Why is that? Christians in Rome were facing wild beasts, literally, in the Colosseums, right? In the gladiator event. They were facing wild beasts. So here they're able to read it and say, hey, Christ went through this. Christ did this. Christ was tempted, and he didn't cave, right? He stood his ground. That was the big thing back then. You know, are you going, are you going to be a Christian that doesn't cave whenever you're being persecuted, whenever you're in the arena, whenever, whenever you're in dungeon, in the dungeons and um, all, there's a lot of good books out there on this. Um, they're, they're really difficult reading though, because you're seeing just the most just brutal, barbaric tactics pretty much ever invented perhaps by the history of man in the history of man used on people who were Christians. But at the same time, this is, this is Mark who's saying, listen, Christ promised us this, right? So that's the first thing. There's references like this throughout to certain things that Roman Christians would have gone through. Also, uh, remember the parable of the soils, okay? This is, this is Christ talking about the difficulty of keeping the faith. The parable of the soils, and we're going to talk about this at some point as we go through this book, but Christ references the sower who went out to sow. He's a farmer. He's sowing seed. And he throws seed onto one type of soil, and it's a really hard type of soil. And immediately the birds of the air come, and they pick it up, and they pluck it away. And he says, that's the devil. You know, when somebody hears the gospel, the devil comes, they snatch the seed out, takes it away, boom. He says, they're, you know, they're, they're, that's that. They're not even close. It doesn't even look like they're saved or anything like that. He says, there's two other types of soil. There's a soil that is shallow, and the sower casts the seed onto the shallow soil. And because it's shallow, it sprouts right away because it's getting that nice sunlight. The sunlight's hitting that shallow soil. It's sprouting right away. But what happens is, is because it has no root, it withers up. It can't take the heat. And he says, this is like those who come to Christ, supposedly, it looks like it, but whenever trials and tribulations come along, they don't stand their ground. They give in. They go back to the world. It's a false conversion. Right. And then the third soil, he talks about how the seed, the seed comes up and the weeds come up with it and it chokes out the good plant. And he says, these are the people who get carried away by the love of this world and the deceitfulness of riches. And because of that, they fall away. It's a false conversion. They're not truly saved. It looks like they were, but they're not. He says the fourth soil is the good soil that grows and it bears fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. That's in this. And again, Mark being the first gospel, it's also in the other gospels. But you have to remember, these are the things. And, and, and in a minute, you're going to see where Mark had heard this himself. Because if you remember, you're probably not aware, right? You never, you never remember Mark being a, a, an apostle. You're like, wait a minute, Mark, Mark the apostle? I don't remember him as one of the 12, right? He wasn't. And we'll talk about where he's getting his information in a minute. Um, also, if you look at Mark 8, look at Mark 8, 34 through 38. Jesus says this, um, but they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of, of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them and taking him into his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So what's he saying there? He's saying that there is a, there's a sense in which we're called to have a, a radical 
abandonment of life in order to follow Jesus Christ, to be entirely different, to be changed, right? To be other than we, we were before we were converted. And, and he's going to use these illustrations throughout the scripture. Lastly, I want to look at 949. And it's, he says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone will be salted with fire. Now, that's very prominent if you're living in Rome and you're coming out the aftermath of your city burning down and you being blamed for it, right? You're going to be salted with fire, persecution, difficulties, trials. Okay, so this book is full of this. Um, it was written by Mark. Now, Mark was not an apostle, as I mentioned, but Mark is in the Bible, in the New Testament, everywhere. Mark's everywhere in the New Testament. So turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Okay, now remember, Mark was the guy in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas go out, and they take Mark with them on one of their missionary journeys. Remember that? They take this guy, Mark, with them. So Mark is around Paul. Mark's around Barnabas. They're like, Mark, you come with us, right? They take off. They go across the, or the sea, and when they get to the other side, Mark's like, you know what? I'm out of here, and he goes back. Now, we don't really know why he went back, but apparently it wasn't for very good reasons because on the next journey, when Mark goes, wants to go back with Paul and Barnabas, Paul is like, no, I don't want to take Mark. He, he dipped out last time. He, he abandoned us. I'm paraphrasing, but I don't want to take Mark. And Barnabas is like, well, I think um, Mark is related to Barnabas. And Barnabas is like, well, I, I, I do want to take Mark. And so Barnabas goes one way with Mark. Paul goes the other way. But at the end of Paul's life, um, we're going to look at this in a minute as far as Paul's response at the end of his life to Mark. But yeah, so First Peter chapter 5, look at, look at, um, look at Peter's his comment here on, on Mark. She who is in Babylon, usually that's a reference to Rome. That's interesting, right? Mark is writing this to Christians in Rome. Peter says, she who is in Babylon himself, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Mark is with Peter in Babylon, a.k.a. Rome. They use the word Babylon because as, as this message goes out, they, they're not going to say where they're at. You know, they're using code language in a sense. They want to disguise where they are. And also, it's a, it's a symbolic reference to how evil that city is. Okay, so he, uh, Mark is in Babylon. Peter's in Babylon. Um, look at chapter, um, Acts, look at Acts 12, 12. We even know who Mark's mother was, or as far as some of what she did, Acts 12, 12. Okay, when he realized this, this is Peter, right after he gets out of jail, Peter's busted loose by the angels, he gets out of jail, and when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Some people said this is where the upper room was, um, and this is also when, on the day of Pentecost, where all the Christians were, some people say they were probably at, at uh, Mark's mother's house. That was kind of where everybody congregated. So Mark is very much in the know as far as he's, he's in the middle of everything that's going on in the early church. He's right in the middle of it. He gets his information. Now, this is from, this is from a guy named Papias in 140. And this is just church history. You know, as far as um, Papias was a man, he was second generation to the actual apostles. And this is what he says about Mark and about the gospel of Mark that he wrote. He says, in the elder Papias, said this also, Mark, having become the interpreter of Peter, wrote down accurately whatever he remembered of the things said and done by the Lord, 
uh, for neither did he hear the Lord, nor did he follow him. But afterwards, as I said, Peter, who adapted his teachings to the needs of his hearers, but not as though he were drawing up a connected account of the Lord's oracles. So then Mark made no mistake in thus recording some things just as he remembered them. For he took forethought for one thing, not to omit any of the things that he had heard, nor to state any of them falsely. That's a fancy way of saying he got his information from Peter. He was Peter's right-hand man. So what you're hearing in the Gospel of Mark is basically Peter's account of Jesus Christ as Peter remembers it, and he's telling Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And Mark writes it down, and here we are, thousands of years later with the document. And so that's where the book of Mark comes in. And there's a lot of, I I mean, I'm skipping a lot of this stuff. The last part I want to show is Paul's reconciliation with Mark just to show, I mean, it it does, it's a nice, it's a nice uh, ending to the story as far as Mark and and, um, uh, Paul goes, go to Philemon 24. Or Philemon. Tosh is always good to help me out with the pronunciation there. Okay. Verse 24. Um, this is this is Paul. He's writing this letter, and he says he's telling, you know, he's in very typical fashion. He's saying who's with him. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark. There's our guy. That's Mark. Okay. Now, the other place that Paul mentions is... Colossians 4.10, actually 2 Timothy, let's go to 2 Timothy 4.11 while we're back here. 2 Timothy 4.11, so that's a, that's like one book over, two books over. Okay, he says this, only Luke is with me, pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. So he's he's writing this to, to, uh, to Timothy and he's saying, hey, on your way, pick up Mark because I need to use Mark, I need to tell him something. So they're, they're clearly, they've been reconciled in some way. And the last reference to Mark is Colossians 4. Verse 10, again, this is uh, Paul, Colossians 4, verse 10. And Paul says, um, he says this, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Right? So the first part, you're like, about whom you've received instructions, don't welcome him. This guy abandoned us. This guy took off. He doesn't say that, right? He says, about whom you've, you've heard us, in, you've heard me instruct you, welcome him. So maybe there'd been rumors, you know, hey, this, this is the guy that like took off and dipped out on, on Paul and Paul saying, no, no, everything's cool now. Welcome him. He's okay. He's good. So you see there's this nice, I mean, it's a, it's a nice little bow on the end of the story there. Let's turn now to what, the, the meat, you know, the good stuff. Ro, um, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. As we begin, and if you have any more questions on that, by the way, let me know. I have a lot of resources and sources and and more background historical information I can give you on that. Uh, But let's turn to chapter one, verse one, and just look at this first verse. Okay, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And there's really two ways to read this first sentence. Um, It could either be read. This is the gospel the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the son of God, right? It's a, because it is, it's about Jesus Christ. In fact, you know, a lot of times people say, well, what is the, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I mean, are these like, are these, are these biographies? Are they historical treatises? And, and most people say, no, they, they're proclamations. They're telling you what Christ came to do. They're telling you what Christ did. These are, th- this is telling you what you must do to be saved, what you must do to be right with God, but also as Christians, how are we supposed to live in light of certain things that we're facing? That's what the Gospels are for. 
So it's kind of a combination of everything, but primarily their proclamation, their gospel proclamations, talking about the good news that Christ brings. But again, it could be, so it could be the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, because it is about Jesus Christ, or it could be read the beginning of the gospel of the good news that Jesus Christ proclaimed, right? So Jesus Christ proclaims these good news. So it's his gospel. He's proclaiming it. However you want to read it, doesn't matter, to be honest. Both are fine, right? This is the gospel about Jesus Christ, and it's also the message that Jesus Christ proclaimed, okay? But I want to look at three things here specifically, okay? Number one, it is gospel, okay? It is gospel, meaning it's good news. Now, um, especially now it's so common to hear the word gospel. We don't really think about it. But, you know, this word actually had a very, um, very specific meaning, especially in the biblical context. And it did mean good news, but it was especially in the in light of uh, like battles that were taking place. So whenever there was a battle back in those days, you know, they didn't have text messages or phone calls or emails or things like that. They didn't have they didn't they weren't able to wire anybody. So what, what they would do is they would send out runners. Right. They would, and, and you see that in the Old Testament a lot of times, you know, David's in the middle or David's army's in the middle of a, a, a war. And they send a runner back to David to tell him the outcome. And whenever they bring good news, they called it gospel. That's why in Romans, it talks about those who preach the gospel. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? Why are their feet beautiful? Because it was an illustration of them running with good news. So this is gospel. This is good news. That's what that word means, right? It's glad tidings. It's used of reports of victory from the battlefield. 2 Samuel 4.10, 1 Samuel 31.9. There's also a reference to it in Isaiah 52 that speaks of the gospel or good news of God saving his people, especially um, from, from Egypt, whenever Moses and the Israelites were enslaved, he comes and he saves his people. But in the end times, meaning the times when Christ comes, there's also going to be a great deliverance by God, right? So it's good news. And it is not just, here's the thing though. I mean, it must be very relieving. Um, you know, those Joseph and David and, you know, those who have been in military, I, you know, it must be very relieving to me, I would assume, that when you're in the, in the midst of a battle, or maybe you're on the fringe, maybe you're a, a, a commander or something, right? Maybe you're not in it, but you're kind of overseeing it, and then you find out that you won. That's really good news. Maybe, you know, you can imagine, I, I don't think anybody, no, maybe not. Again, maybe David, but I don't know if he, yeah, well, yeah, Vietnam and things like that. I'm assuming my generation, we haven't really been in a war that we could say we've won, you know, you can't say that for Vietnam either, but I'm saying, you know, it must be very exhilarating if you're, if your country is in the middle of a war and you win that war, that must be good news, right? There would be rejoicing. We would be relieved. We would say, okay, thankful, you know, the, the battle's over. We're victorious. That's good news. But the kind of good news that this is talking about is in a whole nother category. This is a whole nother kind of good news, right? It doesn't matter, you know, say you're, Say you're sick or something, and then you get good news. Say someone else is over here, and they're sick. And then you find out, hey, they have good news, and you're, you're relieved for them, and they're relieved. Everybody, that's good news, right? There's a lot, of time, a lot of ways that we have good news come to us. But this kind of good news, when it's talking about the good news of Jesus Christ, notice it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not just any kind of news, right? It's not just any kind of um, glad tidings. We're talking about the ultimate deliverance that pale see if there's not this good news right here it doesn't matter what kind of good news you're going to get in life it's not really that good if there's no good news here because let's say you're sick and then you get good news hey i'm no longer sick well i'm still going to die 
right? Let's say that we're in a war over here with so-and-so nation and we find out, hey, they're on our borders and they're about to storm or whatever it looks like. They're about to come in and invade everybody. But then we find out we won, we, we held them back. Everything's good. That's good news, but guess what? We're still gonna die, right? We're still gonna lose in a sense. So it doesn't matter what kind of news you have. It doesn't matter, you know, what, whatever you think of, whatever your dream is, it doesn't matter if you accomplish that or not. If you accomplish that, it's still not that great because guess what? You still have to die. You're still going to die. So this good news right here is what makes any other of the other kind of good news have any meaning at all. Because if this is not the case, then there's no point to life whatsoever. I think I, I mentioned it months ago, but somebody said, um, if the gospel is true, nothing else matters. If the gospel is not true, nothing matters. If the gospel is not true, what matters? God does. Amen, right? But that's the point, right? If the gospel is true, what else is there? What else is worth living for if the gospel is true? Especially in light of what Christ teaches us. I know of a guy, I went over to his house, I witnessed to him, I said, are you right with God? He said, no, I'm not right with God. He says, because when I read through the Gospels, I find out that in order to be right with God, Christ requires that you go all in for him. And I don't want to do that. I'm not ready to do that. And I left the house rejoicing because I, I, the guy got it, right? He was lost, but he realized it. That you got to go all in. That's what the book, Gospel of Mark, is all about. You've got to be all in. Why? Because everything's going to be taken from you no matter what. So what is the point of living for anything else but Christ? What's the point? There is no point. Because whatever you're living for is going to be taken from you. That's what this book's about. In the midst of trials, circumstances, persecutions, for these guys, you know, whenever they come to your door and knock and say, hey, we found out you're a Christian, you're coming with us, and tomorrow you're in the gladiator arena being sewn up, thrown to the wild beasts. You need to know what's the point. Is Christ worth giving up my life for? That's what you got to know, right? That, and it's not just for them. That's what we have to know. It, it's not like just because we live in 2022, United States of America, it's not like Christ demands less of us, Right? He demands the same thing that he demanded these guys. Are you going to sell out on that day? Now, it could be when they come and knock on your door and say, hey, you're going with us. We found out you're a Christian. Or it could be, let's say you're at work and a certain temptation comes along or somebody comes, right? It could, you could, or maybe with your family and we sell out. Why? Because we, we know that we should do this and we don't do that. Now, who has not done that, right? You're at work and you're thinking, man, you know, I should do this or somebody over here. For, you know, I remember the, just how tem tempting, you know, that the world is, right? Because we're not called to be monks, so we're still out in the world. We're still mixing it up and engaging with the world. Well, that's hard. That's, that's tempting, right? But in those circumstances, who are we living for? We're still called to live for Christ. Now, granted, if you're in Christ, yes, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. No doubt. That's what the gospel means. Because we have fallen short of the glory of God, we are in need of someone who doesn't fall short, who comes in and delivers us. That's what this is. The good news is that Christ took on flesh. So it's not just good news about a war. It's not just good news. Hey, I got a promotion at work. I got it. Hey, I found this check in the, on, the, on the floor. I forgot all about it. Now I'm like, you know, I have this check. I didn't know. I, I have more money. Uh, you know, I, I, my, my gas tank is on empty, which happens to me every single week, it seems. And I didn't run out of gas to the gas station. That's good news. 
that's nothing, right? That's nothing, not even on the same level. It's not even in the same category of the good news that this is about. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ is because it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Jesus Christ and who he did and what he does. And specifically, notice it says the gospel of Jesus Christ, comma, the son of God. Right now, Christ means Messiah. That's the anointed one. That's a really important term. But the son of God, perhaps, is even a richer and more uh, a fuller term. The son of God, because what he's pointing to here is God's or Christ's deity. Okay, and I want to look at a few things here. Go to Hebrews chapter um, chapter one, because here's the confusion I want to talk about. All right. So. And I run into this all the time. For some reason, I don't know where it came from, but there's this idea, there's this this myth out there in the world that everyone is a child of God. Y'all heard this? Everybody's a child of God. Like you can be, hey, everybody, why? Because we all come from God. So everyone's saying, hey, everybody's a child of God. Okay, first of all, actually, before we look at Hebrews, let me kind of dispel some of this. Look at um, 1 John chapter 3. Because... The scriptures say this, okay? The scriptures say if you are in Christ today, you are a child of God. That's true. You are a son or daughter of God. That is absolutely a fact. 1 John chapter 3, and it says in other places in the same book, 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. So now you have a, you have a dichotomy, right? You have the children of God on the one hand, you have children of the devil on the other hand. Children of God, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So this is about bearing fruit, right? If I say I'm a Christian, but I'm over here living like the world and nothing's ever changed and I'm the same person I was 10 years ago, I'm not imitating Christ, same old person. Guess what? I'm not a child of God, right? I'm still living for my sin. I'm still, in fact, uh, I think, well, yeah, Rudy, we're, uh, Erickson, Rudy mentioned uh, what Paul Washer says about when someone's converted, they don't just have a new relationship with God. They have a new relationship with their sin. They go from loving their sin, being apathetic about it, not really cared. You say, hey, whatever, to all of a sudden they're broken by it. They hate it. They're doing everything they can to lock the arm off if the arm causes you to sin, tear out the eyeball if it causes you to sin, right? Everything you can to crucify the flesh. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in you, sanctifying you, working on you. You have a new nature. And if that's not you, it's obvious, right? He says it right here. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Christ says, whoever sins is a slave of sin. But he also says the Pharisees especially that they are doing the deeds of their father, the devil. Then they try to kill him. So they knew what he was talking about, right? So there, that is a myth because not everybody, if you're not in Christ, you're not a child of God. It says the same thing in Ephesians 2. Uh, Let's turn there for a second. Ephesians chapter 2. And then look at verse 1. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, right? So we're not, in fact, you know, so far are we outside of Christ from being children of God. It says that we're actually children of God's wrath. 
That's what it just says, right? So there's a myth out there just kind of clarifying some of that. But it is to say this. Is there a difference between the type? So I, as a Christian, am a son of God. If you're in Christ today, you are a son or daughter of God. That's absolutely the case. The son or daughter, though, is in a lowercase s and a lowercase d. I'm only a son by virtue of the fact that I have union with the son. You're only a daughter if you're in Christ by the fact that you have union with the son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so if you turn to Hebrews, we'll wrap up here as we look at Hebrews and another passage on the Son of God. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, and these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So Christ, through whom he made the world, verse 3, and he, Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And this whole chapter is about how Christ is above the angels, Christ is above the universe, Christ is above all things, Christ is king of kings, lord of lords, he holds together everything in the universe. He's not, he's no ordinary being, right? He has no beginning. Christ, through whom all things have been made. That implies what? He was always there. He always existed. So this is where we get, and even Christ himself acknowledges this. If you turn to Matthew chapter 28, this is the other place I wanted to look. Matthew chapter 28. There's other places. And then go down to verse 16. This is Christ, the Great Commission. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Who is the Son? Was well, him, right? So he's, what he's saying here is go and make disciples, and when you do so, bestow upon them the name of God. What is the name of God? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he very much acknowledges himself to be God. That's what it, when Mark over here in chapter one, verse one is saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, the Messiah, the anointed one, the, the one who came to save his people. Yes, but he also says the son of God. He's saying Christ, the good news is that Christ has taken on flesh and the one who created the universe has now entered into the universe that he has made in order to deliver wicked people from their sins so that they who did not deserve to be forgiven can not only be forgiven, but have closer and better access to God than the angels themselves because they're grafted into the very nature of Jesus Christ in a sense. That's what this means. So it's not just any kind of good news. This is the ultimate, like, you know, I, to say ultimate even puts it in the same category. It's not even in the same category. Without this, everything becomes nihilistic. There's no point to anything. Nothing. There's no point to anything apart from this right here. So as we look through the Gospel of Mark, first of all, you know what's beautiful about this? He pulls no punches. He pulls no punches about what this book is about. You know, most of the time when people write nowadays, it's all about, oh, you want to be objective. You want to be unbiased. First of all, that's impossible. Nobody's unbiased. Nobody's objective. You can read through any article and figure out what side they're coming from, right? Mark is saying, I'm pulling no punches. I'm coming forward right now to tell you this is the Son of God, right? This is, this is what this book's about. This is the point of the universe. This is the point of life. This is the chief end of man, to love God, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. Why? Because he's worthy. So that's what this book's about, especially, 
in light of you and me as Christians living in our day-to-day context and going through struggles and difficulties and trials and fires and everything else. Might not look like they did, you know, 2,000 years ago, but you know and I know we still have our trials every single day in our lives. They're fires. They're not like that fire, but they are fires to us. They're big, right? And we are just as important in the eyes of God, if you're in Christ today, as any one of those peoples who were thrown into the gladiator arena. That is a fact. You might seem like you're not worthy because you're like, I haven't gone through anything like that. But in the eyes of God, you are worthy. And you might go through something like that. You never know. Right? Ask the pastors in Canada. Ask the Christians around the world. All right? So I hope it's it's an encouragement as we go through it. And again, if you have any questions on the background of any of this, let me know. I'll send you resources. Okay? But here's the question. Are you a son of God? Before you embark, you know, before we even crack the book, if you're not a son of God, what's the point of, of anything? What's the point of your life? It's all going to be taken from you. It's all going to be snatched away. Right? This is all we have. So let's live for Christ and thank, thank the Lord literally that, that, that God in his mercy has inspired Mark to give us an account of what Christ said and taught. So let's pray. Father, we praise you truly for being sovereign in the history of your church, the the writing of the scriptures. Thank you that you have not left us with, with, with just oral testimony of what Christ did or said or who he was, but that you've given us something that is not only written down, but there's thousands of copies. Lord, thank you for these things. Thank you for this that we have as, as your people, that you've given us this this um this anchor for our souls, anchor for our faith. Lord, thank you for Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us, Lord. Help us to be faithful even unto death, faithful in our, even the mundane, the trivial things in life. We know that, that, that no decision is trivial in light of eternity, Lord. So help us, Father. Help us to be people who love Christ. Lord, we need your help for this. We know that apart from, apart from you, Lord, we, we can do nothing. We, we truly say that and confess that, Lord. So help us as we go through this book. I pray that you would be with your people, encourage your people, sanctify us. Lord, be with those who are not your people. Convict them, open their eyes to your truth, turn them from darkness to light. Lord, thank you for being a God who is mighty enough to save and a God who is willing to save and a God who does save every single day. We praise you today in Jesus' name. Amen.